0: listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org.
1: Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 19 verses 11 through 27. It is another parable. It's on page 854 in your Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Another little short note, um, in this translation it talks about the master giving his slaves a pound. A pound is a month's wages, so that's barely a year's worth of wages that he's assigning to them. Uh, in, in this piece, just to give you an idea of the value um, that we're actually talking about. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then returned he summoned 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 pounds and said to them, do business with with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made 10 more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of 10 cities. Then the second came saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put out my money into the bank? Then, when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, Take the pound from him and give it to the one who has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to all those who have more will, to have more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence."
0: Thanks, Larry. Yep. <clears throat> and thanks, Parker. Let's hear one more round of applause for him. That was great <clears throat> sax solo. So the end of this passage makes me think, you know, I always hear people talk about all the blood and slaughter in the Old Testament. Isn't it great? None of that's in the New Testament. We'll get to that in a minute or two. Um, anyway, uh, we are nearing the end of the series we've been in the last few months, looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We only have a couple more parables to go, and then we're going to be moving on to something new and exciting for Advent and beyond. So uh, stay tuned for that. Now we've talked about this um, a lot in this series, but the parables, these stories Jesus tells in the gospel, they're metaphorical by nature. These are stories that point to deeper realities, different ideas, deeper truths about God, God's kingdom, what it looks like to follow God as a disciple of Jesus today. And since these stories are metaphorical, the parables are actually pretty open to interpretation. Um, A lot of times when we come to the Bible, we're taught to look for, like, the one right reading. What's the one takeaway we're supposed to have from this passage? But the parables, almost by design, don't work like that. These stories are open to interpretation. You might read them in a different setting or with a different group of people or at a different point in your life and notice entirely new things, new takeaways that you'd never spotted before. The Prodigal Son is one of these stories Jesus tells. It's a great example of this. It's one of the more famous ones, but who here has heard of the Prodigal Son by show of hands? It's a lot of us. That's good. Um, It's this story Jesus tells about a father who has two sons. And one day the younger son asks for his inheritance in advance while the father is still alive. Not exactly something you do. And then he goes off, he blows it all. And then the son returns home, and starving, only to receive grace and forgiveness from the father. Meanwhile, the other son is very angry about this grace and forgiveness that's been dispensed. That's a story that's open to interpretation. It reads very differently depending on where you place yourself in it. If you see yourself as the prodigal, the one who fell away and received forgiveness, it reads one way. If you see yourself um, as the father who's being called to forgive someone else. It reads another way. If you're the angry brother who is uh, bitter and enraged that someone else is getting grace, it reads differently. There was actually a popular reading of the prodigal son in the early church that saw Jesus as the prodigal son. Jesus leaves his father's house. He leaves heaven. He travels to a hostile foreign land, where he brings this inheritance of God's grace, which he lavishes upon everyone. And then when Jesus returns to God's house, forgiveness is poured out for everyone. Do you see that kind of reading of the prodigal son? It's very different than how we look at the story today, but that was the popular reading of this story for centuries. All that to say that these stories are open to interpretation. We're not looking at the prodigal son today, we're looking at the parable of the ten pounds. But this is another story that's open to interpretation. The story we're looking at today is about this king who goes off to receive a kingdom. And while the king's gone, he entrusts ten slaves with a sum of money to manage in his absence. Then the king goes off. The king actually gets rejected by the people in this new kingdom that he's going to. And so he comes back home and asks his slaves to give him an account of the money he dealt to them. And then he deals out rewards or punishment based on that account. Now, the, prop, the, the popular reading of this story today is that it's a story about stewardship. Stewardship. How many of you, if you're familiar with the story, you've heard it maybe in a stewardship series or something like that? Yes, I see some hands. Very good. The idea when we normally read this story today is that the king is God. We are the slaves who have been entrusted with gifts, with sums of something. And our job is to steward those gifts well, to steward them for God's kingdom. And if we steward them well, we'll be rewarded, and if not, we'll be punished. That's the way this story is often read. And I don't want to dismiss that reading today. I don't want to say that that's wrong or anything like that. Because God is our king, right? And we have been entrusted with gifts, and we should steward those gifts well. That's all good stuff. But I think there are other ways to look at this story. I think there are other interpretations other than this popular stewardship-oriented one, other interpretations that actually land on some things that we miss, but that would have been super obvious to Jesus' audience. So I want to delve into all that today and offer an alternative reading of this parable, not to dismiss the one you're all familiar with. You can still hold on to that if you like it, but just another way to look at it. Does that sound good? Good. That's what I have planned, so if not not much we can do about it. All right. The first question I want to ask is, who is this king? What's the identity of the king in this story? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it us? Is it someone else? We saw, like, with the prodigal son, that who you plug into these different positions makes a lot of difference. It makes a big difference if you're the prodigal son or if Jesus is the prodigal son. It makes a big difference if uh, the king is God or if I'm the king. So who's this king? The uh, stewardship-based interpretation of the story assumes that God is king, and that's one potential reading. But there's another way to look at it. The king in this story is very rich and very powerful. Now we've been reading through the parables of jesus for a few months now you are all experts in this by now i think you should pat yourselves on the back we've seen a lot of these stories a lot of them have had rich powerful characters and i want to ask a question and you can actually shout out if you have an idea are there any things we've discovered about rich powerful people in jesus's parables especially rich powerful men Any uh, common themes? Any ideas that we've worked through these last couple of months from the parables? Not everyone at once, please. They say you should never ask an open-ended question like this in a sermon because you'll be disappointed. (laughs) They're not all good. Thank you, Sandy. Greedy. Greedy. yeah. They're usually the bad guy. There are exceptions to this. You know, there's stories where, like, a rich person is throwing a big meal or being very generous. There are a few stories like that, but for the most part, when we find a rich, powerful person in one of Jesus's parables, they're usually the villain. Things rarely work out well for that person. Think about the parable of the rich fool, which we looked at a little over a month ago now, this story about a rich guy who builds all these massive storehouses to store all his wealth and all his treasure, and then he dies the next day. Wah, wah. <laughs> right? Or the rich man Lazarus. This is another story. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. This is a pleasant story about a rich man who dies and basically goes to hell, and and the explanation we're given is that he ignored the poor, hungry beggar at his gate when he was alive. So now the rich man is suffering while the poor man is elevated. The rich guy is almost always the bad guy in the parables. And that's not to say that it's like necessarily wrong to be rich or that like all rich people are bad. This is America. The vast majority of us are quite wealthy globally and certainly historically. Hopefully that doesn't mean we're all evil. Um, I'll let you figure that out. But in Jesus' parables, when there is a rich, powerful figure, they are usually the villain. So right away, when we get this story about a king who's very rich and very powerful, our antennas should be up. But it's not just the wealth of this guy that gives it away. The story itself practically bashes us over the head with the idea that this king might not be a stand-up guy. In verse 14, uh, when the king enters into his new kingdom, the citizens hate him and reject him. In verse 21, the third slave, the one who um, didn't do anything with with the pound, he says that the king is a harsh man who reaps where he did not sow. And the king almost seems to affirm that in the next verse. Then at the end of the story, verse 27, the king orders for all of his enemies to be brought before him and slaughtered in his presence. Not exactly behavior we should emulate, right? Right. And there's actually a really big tell that this king's not a good guy. It's in verse 26. Um, this is where the king takes the mina or the pound away from the slave with one, and he gives it to the slave with ten. And the king says this, this will actually be on the screen. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, we've not only looked at the parables for the last couple months, we've been in the Gospel of Luke now for a year. We started the Gospel of Luke way back in December, and we've jumped around a bit, but we should all be pretty well grounded in Luke's Gospel by now. And if there's anything we've seen in Luke, it's that the teachings of Jesus are the opposite of this. In his very first sermon, Luke 6, or sorry, uh, this is a later sermon, but in Luke 6, Jesus declares the good news that the lowly will be exalted and the powerful brought down. Luke 4, his actual first sermon, he says something very, very similar. But here's Luke 6. Here's what Jesus has to say here. Blessed are you who are poor... For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. It's the opposite of what the king says. There's also the the very first chapter of Luke uh, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, she has this to say, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Not to those who have, more will be given. Not from those who don't have even what they have will be taken away. Jesus' message throughout this gospel is the exact opposite. So who is this king? Is there a king who is the exact opposite of Jesus? Are there any other kingly characters in Luke's gospel that might be good candidates? The answer is yes, and the most obvious candidate is King Herod. There are actually two King Herods uh, in the Bible. There's Herod the Great, who was the king in Judea when Jesus was born. That's the king who famously tried to kill Jesus as a baby. We all remember that pleasant Christmas story, right? But then there's his son, Herod Antipas, who took the throne when Jesus was a young boy after Herod the Great died. Herod Antipas, that's the King Herod who kills John the Baptist, That's also the King Herod who Jesus appears before when he's on the road to the cross, when he's being passed around, first to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate, and then finally to the cross. Herod Antipas, the Roman-appointed king in Judea at the time this story was told, looks an awful lot like the king in this parable. We've actually got a visual. Uh, Here's a picture of King Herod. That's from Jesus Christ Superstar, but I think it's probably pretty accurate. I don't know. I actually have another picture. There's a, we have a bust of Herod uh, that's more from the time. This might be a little bit closer, although I kind of like the other one. We'll keep them both up there. You guys can make up your own minds. <clears throat> but <laughs> we might not be able to leave that up there for too long. Anyway, <clears throat> King Herod, Herod Antipas, this guy maybe, he was a bad guy. He was a notoriously hated king, he was very vicious, Um, he was viewed as incompetent. When he took the throne after the death of his father, there was this grand procession where the new King Herod comes to town and the people in the city booed at him, told him to get lost. And so in response, King Herod rounded up all of his political enemies, the people who were riling up the crowds to boo him. And he ordered them slaughtered in his presence. That should sound familiar. Herod was also known to foolishly grant large sums of, uh, of power, large amounts of power, to people who didn't earn it. A lot of his friends, family member, uh, people whose who only real qualification was their loyalty to him. And that parallel actually comes out pretty clearly in this story as well. Um, Larry talked a bit about what a pound or a mina was worth. There's some debate over that. Generally, it's thought to be between three to four months' wage of a poor day laborer. So he gives each of these slaves a mina. Three to four months' wage of a poor day laborer. What are we talking like? Ten grand? Maybe a little bit more? Not a small sum of money at all but the first slave takes it, takes about 10 grand, maybe less, maybe more. Turns it into 100 grand, which is impressive, but then he's put in charge of 10 cities, which seems a bit excessive. That seems a little unearned, maybe even ridiculous. Some scholars read this story as a parody of King Herod. It's like a first century uh, Saturday Saturday Night Live sketch. Jesus is telling this story intended to make the king look as ridiculous as possible. Because this is like the way every corrupt leader functions, right? From like brutal dictators to crooked bureaucrats, seize power by any means necessary. Destroy your political opponents, either um, in in like the realm of public opinion, or a bloodbath, and then reward the people who are loyal to you with undue power and influence. We've seen this play out a lot through history. Why does Jesus tell a story like this? What's the point? What's the takeaway of this first century Jewish SNL sketch? For that, you've got to look at the context. This story is told right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, that famous story where Jesus rides on a donkey and all the people are waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, that means save us. Jesus tells this parable right before that happens. That's the very next story. The introduction to this parable, verse 11. It says, as they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, and there are some people there who assume he's going to be another king just like Herod. He's going to be a good Herod. The actual king who comes to liberate the people, drive out the oppressors, slaughter the brutal overlords who've been oppressing the people, and empower the people. The crowds want a Herod-style king. Those people shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, they want a king like Herod, but on our side. Someone who will give us what we want someone who will smite our enemies for a change. In the original context, I think Jesus tells this story to draw a contrast between himself and Herod. That's at least one way to read this story. To let everyone know that this kingdom, God's kingdom, isn't going to look like Herod's kingdom. And we all know what happens, right? Jesus rides into the town and is welcomed as a king. The people reject him, and there's a bloodbath. But this time, it's not his enemies that are slaughtered. It's the king. It's Jesus' blood that is spilled for the salvation of the world. Jesus' coronation ceremony is the cross where a Roman soldier puts a sign over his head that reads, King of the Jews. It's through the cross that Jesus conquers death once and for all, liberates us from sin, and establishes God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. How many of us are still clamoring for a king Like Herod. How many of us are still hungry for a strong man? A tough guy. Someone who's going to give us what we want. Put us in charge. Put the church in a position of power and authority. Make our enemies toe the line. You know, we're only like a week away from that whole Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays fight. That's coming soon, get ready. Um, We're only a week away from that time of the year. Every year, that battle of Christians who are upset that our holiday doesn't get preferential treatment anymore. This has been the tug of war of the church for centuries. Every war over religion, from like the Crusades to the battles between Protestants and Catholics in Europe, have been the result of the church cozying up with strongmen vying for political power and expecting something in return. Today in America, this typically uh, takes the form of either the religious right or the religious left, although it's opposite, right? (laughs) Religious right, religious left. Um, And it's easy to beat up on the religious right because they happen to hold power right now, but neither are really great ideas, you guys. Anytime we're willing to turn a blind eye to corruption or violence or immorality in our leaders because they give us X, Y, and Z, we are in very dangerous territory. We fall in that same trap as the people who shouted, crucify him, one week after they were yelling, Hosanna. And I really believe that nothing has damaged the church more in our time than the quest for worldly there's nothing that's turned more people away or robbed us of our moral voice in society more than cozying up with strong men. After Jesus marches into Jerusalem, after all the palms and the hosannas and all that, he looks over the city and he weeps. Same chapter we're in, Luke 19, but starting in verse 41. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your vision visitation from God. This is a declaration of mourning. Jesus is heartbroken when he says this. And if you know your history, you know that the people of Jerusalem are going to get their Herod-style king. About 40 years after the time of Jesus, <clears throat> they're going to get the strong man they've been looking for. And they're finally going to Mount a rebellion against Rome that pushes the Roman occupiers out of the city of Jerusalem. And then the Romans are going to regroup. They're going to send in reinforcements. And in 70 AD, the Roman armies sweep through Jerusalem and destroy it. They slaughter the people. They destroy the buildings, not leaving one stone upon another. If the church keeps striving for worldly power, if God's people keep striving for worldly power and authority, it's going to destroy us. But if we can tap into God's kingdom, if we follow Jesus as king, if we take up our crosses daily and die to ourselves, if we love our neighbors and even our enemies, If we spread the good news of God's kingdom in our communities and across the world, well, then the powers that be can't touch us. And we just might even save the church in the process. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for sending us a king in Jesus who looks nothing like Herod. Thank you for giving us a king who rules through love and compassion. A king who would sooner lay down his life for his enemies than slaughter them. Be with us, God. Be with your church. Give us wisdom and truth. We know we still search for kings like Herod, Lord. But help us to repent from that search and to follow Jesus as our one and only King. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure
1: to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB and on our website, brockportfirstbaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.